Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, where we continue our study of messages through the gospel according to Matthew. For those of you losing, using the black Bibles around you, Matthew chapter 17 can be found on page 822. And this morning we'll draw our attention to verses 14 to 23. Page 822, Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 23. Before I read the text, I want to know if anybody remembers a young boy named Braylon. As you can see in the photo behind me, it's a little fuzzy and the light's not good, but this is a, a young boy with, a prosthetic, with two prosthetic legs. There's a really good chance that even if you don't remember him, that you've seen him before. It's a good chance. Not 100%, but a lot of you probably have. I wonder if you've also ever heard of or known about the company called Microsoft. Any head nods? Yes, I've heard of Microsoft. Braylon, I'm not sure. Microsoft, yes, I've heard of them. What does Braylon, a boy with prosthetic legs, have to do with a tech company called Microsoft? Well, in 2015, for any of you that were watching the Super Bowl, it's likely that you saw Braylon on one of their advertisements. Microsoft did a whole series of ads during the 2015 Super Bowl, and uh, the picture of Braylon, if you want to go back to that, was uh, a series of shots and photos, videos, and still pictures of a young boy who, as you can see, has a disability. Throughout the commercial, Braylon's disability is the backdrop to Microsoft, the hero. They're the savior who has been providing technological advances for him to be able to walk and do life. And so therefore, you've got these hashtags, as you see on the next slide, Microsoft, empowering. It's small there. But one of the key lines in this series of advertisements is that Braylon has a new life. Braylon has a life without limits. And then it asks the question, what can you do? And then the commercial ends with this picture that you see behind me, Microsoft empowering. In other words, Braylon's disability is a backdrop for Microsoft to pull on your heartstrings, for them to realize that they're saving people if you would just put your trust in technology and the advancements of companies like Microsoft. In a much more profound, greater, and glorious way, we're going to read a story now about a boy with a disability. It too provides the backdrop, but of a greater savior named Jesus. And he too will give new life not only to this boy, but to all who would put their trust in him. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 23. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The outline of this message is going to take it into three parts. I want to just consider three different aspects of this story. Really, it's three characters. So first, the disability of the boy. Second, the lack of faith of the disciples. And third, the amazing, empowering, life-giving Jesus, the Deliverer. So if you're taking notes or just want to just follow along in your mind, I would encourage you to follow along in the Bible. We're going to work through several details of this story, but we're going to take them one at a time. First, we're going to consider this disability that this boy has. And my hope as we look at this first story is that we come to a heartfelt awareness of the sort of problems that people bring to Jesus. They're not hangnails. They're not stubbed toes, little headaches. We're talking about serious problems. And time and time again, we see these serious problems as being problems that you and I would look at and then be insurmountable, impossible, unbelievable, that something other than what Jesus did, we would just imagine this is just the way the life works. This is how things are. So we need to do our best as every time we enter in a story of Scripture is to put ourselves in the shoes of the characters. And so first, I want you to think about the disability of the boy from the father. It says in verse 14, they came to the crowd and in that crowd was a man. And the man came up to Jesus. And he kneeled before him. And so we need to have in our minds the picture of a man. More than likely this phrase of kneeling is just respect, pleading. He's on his knees. You need to imagine a guy that has no hope because he's already tried with the disciples and he's just pleading with Jesus. Have you ever been in this posture? Do you know yourself to be in a, a moment of desperation of just on your knees, I've got no other place to go. God, would you help me? This is where our story finds itself. We need to understand that this boy has severe disability. It's a complex disability of which I do not feel as if I've completely wrapped my mind around what's going on. Because the first descriptions of it are all physical from the dad. The dad's on his knees and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. This word appears twice in the Bible. It is a very rare word. It is not the word for epilepsy. 
It is a word used for the effect from a moon goddess. So this is where it gets very nutty in terms of trying to wade through the details of this text. The word for seizures is the word that was used to talk about people that in the ancient world they would have believed that the moon, and particularly a moon goddess, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the view of the authors here, I'm just telling you they're using the language that would have been common in the ancient world for people who have been what we would just simply say moonstruck. Moonstruck. That's the, that's the most literal translation of the word seizure here. There is another word for seizure, and there does seem to be a category for physical seizures in the ancient world. But as we see by the use of this word, that kind of convulsion, as we read Mark's gospel, the foaming at the mouth, the typical things we would think of for epilepsy, which is why it's translated the epileptic, which I do think is a bit of a better translation if any of you got that old King James version. They take the moon goddess thing quite literally and they just translate it the lunatic. The reason they do that is because if you think of lunar, that's the root word for moon, and so from that they say, hey, he is a lunatic. He's been struck by the moon. So even though that makes sense as to why the King James back in the 1600s translated lunatic, if you were I were to read it, it probably wouldn't be so helpful. Needless to say, we know from the text that the suffering that this boy is experiencing is what? Severe. Hence, a father at the end of his rope. You've got to understand that in the first century Palestinian Middle Eastern world, men don't get down on their knees very easily. Shame, honor culture. Not like our culture, but any of you that are familiar or have some sort of awareness of a shame and honor culture, this man is putting himself in a place of shame because he is respecting the honor of what he's heard about Jesus, knowing that he has already done plenty of miracles, exorcisms of the like. And so this man humbles himself because his son is suffering, notice the word, terribly or greatly. For... How bad and terrible is this suffering? Often he falls into the fire. Now, these two descriptions, often falling into the fire and often falling into the water, at the minimum it means that he has uncontrollable seizures and at some point there's maybe a fire by the house to keep them warm. Remember, there's no electricity and he's having seizures and he rolls into the fire. Or there's a well outside and there's water and he falls into the well or something, they got to rescue him out, something along those lines. Or maybe he's in a boat, he has a seizure and he falls out of the boat into the water. Or maybe right here we're starting to get a hint that there's something deeper going on, something evil that's trying to kill this young boy. And as we keep reading in the story, we notice that there's the, the conversation about casting out demons if you drop down to verse 18, it says, and Jesus rebuked, and then the language in the original language is, is him. And Jesus rebuked him. And so the question is, who? The boy? He rebuked the boy? And that's why you see most translators go with, no, the demon that's behind all of this. And then that's that conversation that you then see in verse 19. The disciples came to Jesus privately out of the embarrassment of their inability to heal this young boy, they say, why could we not cast it out? Presumably the demon. So what do we have here? Do we have a medical epileptic 
that has neurological brain problems, or do we have a, a demonized, terrorized young boy? And of course, the answer seems to be both. And it probably does not do you justice to swing too far to one end of the pendulum or the other to say that this is just easily understood as a scientific understanding of epilepsy. Remember, there is a word for epilepsy. It's not the word used here. They could have talked about it. The language of epilepsy and that sort of physical manifestation of sickness is known in this world. But there also seems to be something deeper and demonic and evil. And so this is the disability that comes to the disciples first and then Jesus. Parents, can you empathize with this man? Have any of you ever spent time with a parent that is taking care of a child with a disability? If you know anything about what that is like, you know that it is exhausting. If he is often falling into the fire, often falling into the water, what is it like? Constant care, constant supervision. He cannot turn or look any other way. Somebody needs to be by this boy at all times because he is suffering greatly and he might die at any moment if somebody doesn't help protect him. So now parents, that's your child and you've seen them fall into fire multiple times. In the account in Mark chapter 9, people wonder if the boy is even alive. Can you just imagine for the moment the disability that leads to the physical scars on this boy's face or body? There's no doubt that these people are ostracized from the regular community that everybody is having, which isn't too different from people dealing with disabilities in our day. Many places, it, it's not comfortable if you've got a kid that's got autism or some sort of severe disability or, or problem or outburst or fits in any way. To be able to live in normal society, and in fact, with these kind of conditions, it's very presumable for us to think that he would have been considered unclean. Are we starting to wrap our minds a little bit around the backdrop of this disability, the, the weight that is on this dad's shoulders here as he comes and he says, I don't care about my shame anymore. I'll come to whoever. I heard these disciples have had the power to release demons, to heal the sick. And so he goes to the disciples first because they were the ones available because Jesus and three other disciples are on a mountain. And so it seems as if the, dis the nine disciples left are trying their best to heal this boy, and they're unsuccessful. And yet, another blow to a father's final hopes. We have no idea how long they tried, what they said, what they did. All we know is that a father is desperate. He goes to some people who he thinks can help, any of you that's ever had medical conditions and you've gone to doctor after doctor after doctor and you're like, maybe this doctor, maybe this medication. And then again, you come up empty. So he falls before Jesus on his knees and says, your disciples couldn't do it. They could not heal him.
Let's turn to them now. Number two, the disciples. Specifically, we're thinking of what seems to be the nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain. It says in verse 16, that the boy was brought to the disciples, they could not heal him, and so Jesus answered what? Every time we've heard Jesus respond to somebody who's humbling themselves before him and cries, Lord, have mercy. What's he done? He's shown mercy. It wasn't a trick question. Every time you come to Jesus and you humble yourself, and you pray, and you say, God, have mercy on me. He gives mercy. He is merciful. So therefore, it should be striking. It should pop off the page a bit when you see that Jesus' first response is not to the man and immediately giving him mercy. His first response is to his disciples. And the language, I don't think, could be much stronger. The way it's written grammatically, the actual words that are used, the Old Testament echoes back to the book of Deuteronomy that Moses spoke. All sorts of things point to Jesus is, and I don't know which adjective to use, frustrated, annoyed, disappointed, bothered, all of the above. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and perverted It's a twisting and a turning, a perversion. He says, you are a faithless and you are a perverted generation. Almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, when Moses looks at the people and says, you are twisted, perverted. For their lack of faith, for their lack of trust, their lack of obedience. And then he asks these questions, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you. Bring him to me. The bring here is plural, meaning he's not talking to the dad. Bring him to me, disciples. Now, it could be plural. Just think of it very practically. If this boy is constantly in a state of kind of chaos and seizure, he might need more than one person to bring to Jesus. So it could have been the dad and somebody helping But on the heels of a statement like this, it seems as if bring him to me as disciples, what you couldn't do, bring him to me. And then what Matthew does is tell the healing of this boy in the shortest, most terse, short wording and possible way of explaining it. You read Matthew and there's twice as many words to describe this same story. And Mark's normally the one that's quicker and to the point. He's the shorter of the two gospel writers. But in the case of healings and miracles, oftentimes Matthew is a bit shorter. And here, in this case, notice the language in verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed at that hour, instantly, at that very moment. Again, it makes you just start to wonder a little bit. How long were the nine disciples trying to heal this boy? You know? 
just again and again and again, trying to cast out a demon or do something, and it's just not working, you know? And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, bring him to me. Rebuke, gone, done. Just like that. So let's consider for a moment the disciples and their lack of faith. Jesus immediately says, you are faithless, you're a twisted generation, he's annoyed, he's frustrated, and then look at the conversation that happens next. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, how come we couldn't do it? Like, I, I get the sense that this question is very much like an honest, like, Jesus, we tried, and in fact, we know from chapter 10. So you read back earlier in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has already commissioned out these very disciples and said, I am going to give you the power over evil spirits, over sickness, and you are going to go all over and you are going to proclaim the good news and you're going to heal and rescue and save from the kingdom of darkness. Go! And they went. So it starts to make you wonder, they used to be able to do it. Why couldn't they now? And Matthew gives us very little details other than a lack of faith. Jesus says, because of your little faith. And I think it's probably best to understand this phrase as lack of faith. Like they did not have faith for two reasons. Reason number one, look at the very next explanation from Jesus. For truly, I say to you, if you have had just a little bit of faith, like a tiny, small grain of mustard seed kind of faith, that's not much faith. So the phrase little faith should probably just be understood as you just didn't have any faith. Why couldn't we cast them out? Because of your lack of faith. Not the amount. It's not as if you needed a lot of faith. Just a little bit of faith would have worked. And he says, for even with that little bit of faith, you could say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Reason number two, I think he means lack of faith. If you read Mark's account of the same story, and some versions and translations, maybe you have one, adds a little line right after nothing that you will do is impossible, for this will only come out through prayer and fasting. I think the original statement is in Mark's. I don't think it's included in Matthew till much later in terms of manuscript copies. It's a big, long, kind of boring discussion, but some of you might be interested in it. The point is, as we have our Bible, it's more than likely Matthew didn't include that phrase, but Mark did. And for this healing, this demonic possession, terrorizing of a demon, it wouldn't come out except for prayer. Assuming what then? They lacked prayer. They lacked faith. It's like, hey, hey guys, you didn't even pray. <laughs> like, why didn't you try praying? Maybe the difficulty or the trouble that Jesus is having emotionally with the disciples right now is starting to make a little more sense. Like, you guys tried to exercise a demon and you didn't even pray? I mean, could you imagine a much worse scenario for trying to describe somebody who's depending on themselves to try and do something for God instead of somebody who is prayerfully, desperately depending 
on God. Well, a quick litmus test, even in our own lives, is how's your prayer life? By your prayer life, it will show your dependence upon God, your trust in God. And so it seems here the lack of trust and the lack of faith is evidenced by a lack of prayer. And so it is with us. So as we are disciples of Jesus, there are several important things we need to make sure we get straight from this story. Okay? Number one. This is just kind of a little pastoral bullet points of things that we need to be taught from this passage. Number one, you need to make sure you do not use this passage to neglect somebody's physical, medical care. Some people are sick, and we need to take them to doctors. And we should not use passages like this to say, well, if we just pray, that will make everything all better. It may, it may not, but it is foolishness, my friends. If any of us take a passage like this, and this has happened again and again through church history, where the misuse of scripture has led to literally people dying, life and death, may we not be among those kind of people. So, as disciples of Jesus, we do want to be encouraged by the faith and what it can produce, the mountain moving what seems to be impossibilities in our lives. So before we jump to, and so this is kind of the second thing I want to make mention, before we jump to the actual phrase, you can move mountains, and we start saying, well, he doesn't mean move mountains or whatever, like you go to Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest or something and be like, move, you know, like that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the undoing of the created world, that things are going to be flipped upside down. What seems to be impossible, what seems to be as it's so fixed and permanent is not going to be fixed and permanent anymore. And all it takes is a little bit of faith. So it's important for us to not put a bunch of water and, and, and kind of water down this idea of, well, faith to move mountains doesn't literally mean move mountains, and so therefore it's, you know. Like, this is actually number three. You should be encouraged, disciple of Jesus, that you can move mountains, metaphorically speaking. But that's really big stuff. Things in your mind and in your life and world that you would think, that's fixed. That's never going to change. It's always going to be this way. Oh, you have little faith. And lastly, in terms of little pastoral points to make sure we understand, there is a lot of confusion about the idea of amount versus quality. Quantity versus quality of faith. The reason I want to stress the point that I think that they have no faith at all, and they weren't even praying, is to show that it's not like they needed more faith. The whole point of Jesus' little explanation of moving mountains is you don't need much faith. Very, very little bit of faith in the right quality, the right object, well, that can do a lot. But a lot of faith in the wrong object, that does nothing. That's trying to heal a boy 
and you're not getting anywhere with it. As one author puts it this way, the secret, of course, is that the size of your faith doesn't matter. What matters is the God who you believe in. If you would like to see the sun, the size of the window that you are looking through does not matter. What matters is whether or not the window is facing the appropriate direction. Even a tiny little slit in the wall will shine the brightness of the sun on the side of a house. A huge window that is facing in the wrong direction will be no good to you at all. That is what faith is like. The smallest prayer to the one true God will produce the greatest things, whereas the most elaborate devotions to your lesser God, the God that you've made, or indeed somebody else's God, will be useless, if not worse, for you. Get that image in your mind. It is not about how big your faith is, how big your window is. It's, is the window pointed at the right direction to see the glory and the brightness of the sun? Is your faith directed at the right object? Jesus. Which brings us to point three. The deliverer. By looking at the backdrop of the disability, we see that people bring really big stuff to Jesus, mountain-type stuff, terrible suffering, fathers who are distraught at the end of their rope, and Jesus teaches his disciples that just the tiniest little bit of faith would have done the trick. That means this deliverer the object, the glory of the sun out of the window is so bright, so big, so magnificent, so brilliant that it's not about you. It's about him. So much teaching about faith is all about, I need to muster something up. No, you just need to look at him, him, him. Is that stuck in your mind? Is it down deep in your heart? The faith to move mountains is about taking a created, established, permanent world and flipping it upside down. This is what our deliverer does. He comes to restore generations, husbands to their wives and wives to their husbands and children to their fathers and mothers. He has come to restore nations and kingdoms and flip upside down the political corruption and injustice we see every day in the world around us. He has come to restore lunatics and people who are insane or demon-possessed. He comes to put hearts back together when they are broken. He comes to raise up those who have been struck down into the mud. He comes to bring good news to the poor. And it does not matter how bad or broken things are, no matter how shattered your life has become, you could be shattered into a million little pieces through your sin and your foolishness. Or it could be because of the abuse and the suffering of others done toward you. Or it could just be you're just sick and this world is broken. Our God can put it back together because he already has. Not only in the story that we see where he just speaks a word, behold the power of the word of Jesus 
the incarnate Son of God. Disciples, try, 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 try. Rebuke, done. Doesn't it remind you of the God who created everything, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. That Word speaks, and things happen. He rebukes, and people get healed, and demons get cast out. That creator God can put back together every little million broken pieces of our lives and our community and our country and even our whole world. What fragments of your life or your mind or your marriage or your job or the church, whether this one or the broader church, are you tired of seeing what seems to be an apparent victory of the evil one? of sin and suffering and the effects of oppression and persecution and injustice, it just it can be exhausting. Friends, the deliverer, Jesus, is not just one day bringing us to that eventual goal. The text before us declares the kingdom has already come. And this is why Jesus says, in the last two verses of our passage. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And the disciples, when they heard this, were greatly distressed. They still don't get it. To this point, they don't get it. Do you? The way for him to bring it all back together again is for him to be ripped into a million pieces. The way for him to end suffering is to become suffering. The way for him to save our lives is for him to lose his life. They don't get that. And until you do, you will be weak and there will be no power. But the gospel declaims, proclaims and declares to us, through our weakness, we become strong and powerful because this has already happened. We live on the other side of Jesus dying, being delivered. It's, it's the phrase used most often for the betrayal of Judas. And then rising again on the third day. This is the second time we've seen in Matthew's gospel that he's predicted that he will die and then rise again. And both times, they're like, whew, way over their heads. They're thinking when he means raised on the third day, that must be some other time. Not like right now, he's going to die and then three literal days later, he's going to come back to life. Not a chance. Friends, that's what happened. The deliverer has delivered. There is no defeat in death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He has come. He has conquered. So friends, as we mourn death, as we lose loved ones, may we never mourn without hope. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning, and he has come and conquered death. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world 
to rescue a broken, hurting, dying group of people. So, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for coming and meeting us where we're at, dealing with us in all of our brokenness, no matter how great your redemption and your deliverance is greater. Thank you. Thank you for hope. There's so many reasons right now, God, for us to think about why there is no hope. We're so comforted by this story and who it points to and what it's about. And we just want to offer up our thanks, God. We are not deserving of this gift. We have cried for mercy, and oh, have you given us mercy. Oh, have you showered upon us every blessing that you could possibly give us. You have not withheld from us anything, any good gift, anything that we would need for life and godliness, anything we would need for salvation and eternal life. You have already provided all of it. And so we thank you, God. We're grateful. We're humbled. We fall. We bow our heads. We come to our knees and we say, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for loving sinners who are undeserving and rebellious. We pray, God, that we, we would have even just a little bit of faith today. Help us as we close this service, as we take the Lord's Supper, to see our Savior. No matter how big our window is, God, point it to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.